Kingdom Roots podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a conversation about the Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha in Paul and Palestinian Judaism. So Scott, we're on to our fourth part of this series here as we've been looking at uh, E.P. Sanders' work in Paul and Palestinian Judaism. And um, today we're looking at the Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha, um, which are some key literature in the Jewish world. You want to let us know a little bit about that? Okay, we, we uh, these are, are categorical collections of Jewish literature not found in the Bible, but seen in different ways as either valuable for understanding the Bible, uh, that's often called the Apocrypha, uh, and others uh, that are just valuable for understanding Judaism and understanding the world around uh, the Bible or between the Old and the New Testament sometimes. So the Apocrypha is literature that... um, uh, basically, I think it, I could say it this way, is included in some Bibles, uh, some literature in the Old Testament, say Ben Sirach and uh, some additions to Daniel, uh, uh, literature like Judith, First and Second Maccabees. These are called, this is often called apocryphal literature. Um, uh, Roman Catholics have these in their Bibles. Greek Orthodox have these in their Bibles. They have never been seen as inspired the way the 39 and 27 books of the Bible are inspired, but they've always been printed with the Bible. Evangelical Protestants cut those books out of the Bible um, in that sense of traditional Bibles and print Bibles without them and buy the Apocrypha separately. Uh, For instance, the NIV has never translated Uh, The RSV does have, and that's uh, the standard Bible that I use, I use the Harper Collins Study Bible for my RSV, and that, uh, or on my desk at home I do, and that one has the Apocrypha, and it's it's a a very good translation of the Apocrypha. The Pseudepigrapha is a collection of writings uh, attributed to, let's say, biblical figures that were not written by those biblical figures. So, so I have a two-volume uh, edition of the Old Testament Pseudepigrapha by Jim uh, J. H. Charlesworth, and it's a, a marvelous. I mean, I when I was doing my PhD, I had to use an old book by R. H. Charles, and it was a great big thing. It was impossible to find copies for yourself. So you just had to use the library copy. The Old Testament Pseudepigrapha has a two-volume edition. We have books like this. We have 1st, 2nd, 3rd Enoch, the Sibylline Oracles, the Apocryphon of of Ezekiel, the fourth book of Ezra, Vision of Ezra. Uh, I had some friends who were into this. 2nd and 3rd Barak or Baruch, the Apocalypse of Elijah, the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs, which are fascinating. And... um, so there's all kinds of these writings, and it's it is quite a, a chore to read all of this literature. There's uh, uh, wisdom literature and 
There's prayers and psalms like uh, uh, the Psalms of Solomon, the Odes of Solomon, and and these are texts that um, that give us insight into the Jewish world and expand our understanding of what that world believed and what it was like at that time. So, um, you know, the serious student of the New Testament wants to have a copy of the Dead Sea Scrolls, want to have a copy of the Apocrypha, the Pseudepigrapha, and when people in the books they're reading mention these, they look them up and check the context and read more about them, but they also read them and study them on their own to understand that world. And before long, you have, instead of 66 books, you have a couple hundred books of people that you know things about. I have a friend who's a New Testament scholar named Craig Evans, who has is a master of this, this type of literature. And I, I one time heard him say that he tries to read through all this literature every year, uh, one time. So, Wow, that's quite a bit. It's quite a bit. I think he, he knows the literature so well that he can just kind of review it and get through it pretty well. So I've never been uh, that good with it. I have read all of this literature. At one point, I had read every scrap of word that had been recovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls. In the last 10 or 15 years, I have paid as much attention to all the newest things that are coming out. But I've, I have read... Uh, stuff that I've had an opportunity to read. Um, My question last week, we looked at the Dead Sea Scrolls and saw how covenant nomenism was present there, uh, as well as in the first body of literature that Sanders looked at. What are some ways in which we see that that covenant nomenism is also present in the Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha? Okay. Nomism, not nomenism. Nomism. Uh, Sanders Sanders, after examining Ben Sirach, which is from wisdom literature, First Enoch, which is from um, apocalyptic literature, Jubilees, a similar type thing, but uh, more of a, a history of Israel again. Psalms of Solomon, which is prayers, and Fourth Ezra, which is a text that has been accused of, of this works righteousness religion. Sanders goes through all this literature carefully, tediously. Uh, at times, he probably leans a little in the direction of his covenant uh, nomism pattern um, and sort of squeezes out of this literature some themes that fit the pattern that he's studying, a pattern that is shaped by some concerns about whether it is uh, teaching works righteousness. But when, when, when everything shakes down, Sanders believes that, at the, that we find in Judaism of this literature as well, a consistent pattern of religion that he calls covenant nomism. And because repetition is the mother of all learning, as they say in Greek, um, I want to emphasize this again, that, that covenant nomism that Sanders concludes after he's gone through all the literature before he gets to the apostle Paul is that God has chosen Israel and given them the law. The law implies God's promise to maintain the election and the requirement for the people of the covenant to obey it. And God rewards obedience and punishes transgression. And those who transgress, those who sin, those who break the law, 
that law itself provides a means of atonement, and that is the sacrificial system, uh, purging the temple, restoring people's relationship with the covenant God. And that atonement results in maintenance or reestablishment of that covenant relationship and all those who are maintained in the covenant by obedience, atonement, and God's mercy belong to the group that will be saved, those who refuse, those who rebel, those who walk away from the covenant are those who will not be saved. That's Sanders' covenant uh, Judaism or covenant gnomism. In other words, and this is this has to be emphasized over and over for people to catch on to it, Jews did not wake up in the morning wondering if they were going to be saved. They knew they were saved, but they didn't even thought about salvation like this because they were Jewish, because they were the elect people of God, because God had chosen Abraham and they were descendants of Abraham. But they knew that to be truly covenant members, they had to obey the Torah. They didn't obey the Torah to be saved. They obeyed the Torah because they were covenant members. That's what covenant monism teaches. First, God's grace and mercy in electing Israel, calling them from Egypt, and only to those who have been washed through the, dead, uh, through the Red Sea and entered into the land or entered into uh, the wilderness wanderings and came upon Mount Sinai, only those who had, had been liberated from Egypt were given the Torah, and those who wanted to obey that Torah were ushered through another river, the Jordan River, into the land to live as obedient people who follow the covenants, stipulations, and legislations, and do what God has called and if they do, this is, the, this is how the Old Testament's narrative fabric works. If they do, they will be blessed. If they don't, they will be cursed. This is why you read First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and you watch uh, the common theme. When they are doing God, Joshua and Judges as well. When they are doing God's will, the land is blessed. The, it flourishes like like Lake Wobegon in Garrison Keillor's stories. Uh, and when they are disobedient, they are attacked by enemies. Their cities are burned down and uh, they do not flourish. Their crops fail. So this is, this is what covenant gnomism is all about. So if you could unpack that a little more, because Sanders made that observation about the presence of reward and punishment in most of this literature. And how does that um, presence of reward and punishment coexist with covenant nomism? Okay, uh, there you go. We'll get you, we're going to get you on that term before this is over. <laughs> um, okay, here, here's how it works, is that in covenant nomism, you enter a covenant with Yahweh, with God, the God of Israel, that God provides for the people. Abraham didn't earn this covenant. God put him to sleep, entered him into the covenant relationship. And then in Moses, you have God calling him, despite the fact that he's a sinful man. God calls him to a great task. Through Moses, God gives a law, Mosaic, law from Mount Sinai gives the law to Israel and basically says, this is Deuteronomy 28 and 29, 
29, Leviticus chapter 26. It is, it is this basic idea that if you obey God's law, God blesses you. If you disobey God's law, God curses you. So it's just one, if you read Deuteronomy 28, you see it's a mirror image. You do good, this would happen. You do bad, the opposite happen. So your, your grapes shrivel up and you don't get raisins, you get nothing. So the, uh, the, the point of it all is that reward is characteristic of the Jewish uh, world. And this is what um, I said in class the other day, Chaz. And that is, uh, I, I think we need to we need to emphasize this far more often about how we read the New Testament than um, than we do, and we need to see it in its historical context. When we see the word reward in Jewish literature, or when we see it even in the Old Testament, when I say we, I mean Christian. Protestants, we have had a tendency in the past to say that's Jewish, and I'm glad I'm not under the law. And it's too bad for them that they didn't live in a world of grace. So when we see the word reward and blessing and curses, we see, uh, we, we have an operative instinct to say something negative. When we see the word Mistos, the Greek word for reward in the Gospels, or when we read Second Tim, Second Corinthians chapter five, when Paul says that each person will receive according to the things done in the body, we forgive Jesus and Paul for their reward language because we believe they're operating in a world of grace. But when we see it in the Jewish literature. We tend not to forgive them and say they're operating in a world of works righteousness. This is a fundamental mistake. If you read the Gospels and Paul in the context of their Jewish world, you don't see a difference there. Those, those are very similar patterns of thinking that there is something similar in Jesus, that there is a correlation between one's eternal destiny or one's future in the kingdom of God and one's behavior in this world. There is a correlation for the Apostle Paul between how believers live and how they will experience God's blessing in the uh, age to come. Uh, Paul has, it says in 1 Corinthians that some of these people's reward, some of their uh, merit, their uh, works will be burned up because they're so polluted, but they will still be saved. So he makes it clear that uh, that there are rewards um, but and that there's a correlation between eternal destiny and uh, one's behavior, but he sees it as a result of God's grace and because people believe. It's not as simple as these are just rewards. Uh, uh, you know, I, I heard this always as a kid, that there will be uh, gems and diadems and brilliant diamonds and stones in our crown, uh, but uh, that's that's just rewards. It's not uh, about our eternal salvation. I was not one bit interested in having a crown with rubies <laughs> and sapphires in it as a kid, 
I was interested in the baseball hat. <laughs> but um, the the point is there is a correlation in from the Bible, from Genesis through Revelation, between how we live now in obedient faith, in allegiance to Christ, in trusting in him, and living in the power of the Spirit, and our eternal state. Uh, and so the Jewish world and the Christian world are not that far apart on that very theme. So uh, I don't know if I'm answering the question you asked, but I... No, I think so. I, I think the main little, thing... I had a little roll on that one. Yeah, no, that's good because it is a, an important thing that sometimes I think can hang people up and it's to realize that um, rewards aren't in opposition uh, of the covenant, but it's that within no. the covenant right. and living it's in the covenant, the covenant that rewards are experienced through the um, through the life that the com- obeying the commands brings. I mean, it's not that it's, uh, you know, that it magically gets zapped with good things, but that, um, you know, God generally blesses also, I think is a part of the component to those, because this is the way in which he structured the world. And when you obey and follow, then blessing will come from that. You know, um, when I was in college, I wrote in my, my wide margin Bible, something from John Calvin that no one is saved by works, but neither is anyone saved without works. And I don't know. I I was the sort of person who wrote things down like this in when I was a college student uh, without in my Bible writing down where I got that source. I just wrote it down because it was something I wanted to have in my Bible. And I had learned to write some of my favorite sayings in the Bible, inspirational expression. And I don't know if Calvin said that or if, if some preacher said that, but uh, that that statement by Calvin has been has proven true to me throughout my entire life of studying the Bible, that I think that is a, a very consistent way of teaching sort of the compatibility of uh, faith and works in the sense that those who are believers have works. Uh, I remember reading a book by Jim Wallace, and, and the title of his book was Faith Works. And I thought that was so clever. Um, he was talking about social action, that uh, evangelical believers ought to be involved in social justice as well, so that their faith ought to work in the public sector. But as an expression, I thought that's, that's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer taught. Mm-hmm. That's what Jesus taught. That's what Paul taught. That's what John taught. That's what Hebrews taught. Does anyone question that James taught this? I mean, it's it's redolent throughout mm-hmm. the pages of Scripture. Yeah. And so to go back to the Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha, um, as we look at these passages, does the theme of only one, only the only true Israel um, look different in the Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha than it did in, say, the Essene community in Qumran with the Dead Sea Scrolls and with the rabbis? Uh, in general, no. I think that uh, they all believe that the true people of Israel were the people who were obedient. Uh, no doubt, each one of these groups uh, represented in this different literature, say Jubilees or the Psalms of Solomon or even Ben Sirach, which is more connected to uh, upper class people in Jerusalem. Uh, each one of these people believed that God had given that they, they believed in covenantal nomism. 
uh, which is the structure of, let's say, religion of, of the Jewish world from the, from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament in many ways. So um, I would say uh, that that literature emphasized in different ways and in different forms the basic idea that God had chosen Israel. This is fundamental. That God, because God chose Israel, he gave Israel the law as a revelation of how he wanted them to live, that they were going to have to work out what this looked like in specific contexts and in specific ways, uh, but that uh, God was with them, that they, he had given them teachers. There was wisdom uh, in their groups of people who could discern, who could study scripture, who could um, accurately interpret the writings, and as a result, come up with different rules and stipulations and judgments on what constituted holiness, what constituted obedience, what constituted Sabbath obedience. All these things were worked out in different ways, but all of them believed that God had chosen Israel, that God had given them the law, that they were supposed to obey it, that they should duck if they wanted to rebel against the God, uh, against God's will, but that they could count on God's blessing if they were obedient, that if they sinned, there was a means of atonement through repentance and through sacrifice, and that uh, the temple would be purged and they would be back in covenant relationship with God, and that the Gentile pagans who chose to walk away from God were, were there as symbols of what happens when people choose to worship anything other than the one true God. So I, I would say, Chance, that the theme of the only true Israel um, uh, that Israel is the one true people of God is characteristic of this literature. But what you will find in much Jewish literature is a generosity toward Gentiles who do what is right, who do what is good, and that uh, they would believe in what, uh, what some have called righteous Gentiles, Gertzadek, uh, Gertzadek, they, they would believe that uh, God is merciful, God is gracious, that the one true God of Israel loves all human beings, and that those who will turn to him and listen and do what is right and good, even if they don't know the Torah, um, are on God's side. So there was generosity characteristic of the Jewish, uh, of Jewish groups at the time of Jesus and the Apostle Paul. So to wrap things up today, uh, as we kind of conclude our look at the different um, bodies of literature that Sanders looked at, is there anything from the Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha that you feel particularly in, important to leave people with or um, general observations from all of three of these different bodies of work that are really important for us as next time we'll be looking into, in this series, we'll be looking into the specific uh, observations that, that E.P. Sanders translates to Paul. Um, but to send everybody away with yet any closing thoughts? Well, uh, yeah, Chaz, one of the things that you and I had uh, mentioned in pre previously is um, I remember when I was uh, doing my doctorate, I wanted to find a systematic theology of Judaism. And I asked a, a good scholar, 
and said, what's the best systematic theology of Judaism at the time of Jesus and Paul, first century? And I remember the scholars said to me, no, they didn't have a systematic theology. Mm -hmm. They had a story. And um, that really stuck with me. And I don't know uh, that Sand, I, I know that Sanders doesn't think that Judaism at the time of Jesus and Paul had a systematic theology the way we do systematic theology, but they had a general pattern of religion. They had a narrative behind it. And so if Sanders can provide the pattern of religion, people like Jimmy Dunn and, and N.T. Wright and uh, Catherine Grieve and her book on Romans, these different people have, and uh, the apocalyptic scholars like Douglas Campbell, they, they have uh, fleshed out a narrative of sorts in different ways. Uh, some that think this is what everybody in Judaism had as a narrative. Others would say, well, there were a lot of different narratives, but there is a, a Christian narrative that believes that all of it came to fulfillment in Christ. Um, so. The Jewish world did not operate with a systematic theology. They didn't have a John Calvin. Uh, they didn't have a Karl Barth like that. They had various thinkers speaking into various contexts, and you put it together and you come up with a pretty basic pattern of belief. And I think Sanders has put that together very well in his uh, pattern of religion on covenant Romanism. Yeah, that's great. So anything to look forward to as we um, will return back to uh, what what um, Sanders has to cross-section this with Paul? I, one, this is going to be one of the most important things, uh, understanding Sanders. Sanders is often called new perspective. And it is true that E.P. Sanders' understanding of Judaism created a different Judaism, which meant a Judaism, I'll say a more accurate Judaism, that Paul was interacting with. And as a result, it led to modifications of how we read Paul. And that's called the new perspective. Sanders offered one perspective. Jimmy Dunn offered another one. Jimmy Dunn and N.T. Wright are often connected with the new perspective. But Sanders only did the Judaism part. He had a different view of Paul than did Jimmy Dunn and N.T. Wright. So we'll look at Sanders' view of Paul, which in some ways um, gives rise not only to the new perspective, but also to the apocalyptic Paul and to the participationist Paul that we find in Michael Gorman. So I believe Sanders is the hinge. He's the um, transition from uh, an older perspective of Judaism that gave rise to a particular way of framing the Apostle Paul to a new perspective on the Apostle Paul, but that new perspective has a lot of variety. So we'll have fun looking at E.P. Sanders in, in a couple of weeks, yeah. or whenever we do it next. Yeah, it will be fun. So you'll have to make sure if you're not subscribed, subscribe so you don't miss out on that conversation as well. So I want to remind you uh, again that on Wednesday, March 13th, Scott and I are going to be doing a webinar on reading Romans backwards, where we're taking a look at the um, community of which that Paul wrote Romans to, and um, some of the things that come out of that that we really need to be paying attention to to understand um, 
you know, understand what he has to say in that in very important letter. And um, much of this all, you know, intersects. So we'll have a, a time where you'll be able to ask Q&A um, in that as well, uh, as well as a giveaway for those who are willing to share it. So I want to encourage you to get on our show notes and down below and click that link and register for that webinar on March 13th at 1 p.m. So um, thanks so much for joining us today. We're always grateful to have you. Hope you found this discussion on the Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha helpful. And as you learn just the the culture and the, the world in which Paul was writing, um, this is the, how the kingdom took root. So this is what we like to talk about around here. So um, thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to be with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now.